Let's put up Ephesians 4, 32 through 5, 2. I won't read them again. We just read them, but all right, that's enough. It's all we can get on the slide at once. So that's where the last chapter ended. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And as you might know, there were no verses in the original. There were no chapters in the original. It was all one. And so our our translator did their best to figure out, hmm, where can we put a break? I think they did a great job. But that flows right into what's coming. Forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now the next part of the text, please. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore... See, in light of that, in light of that forgiving one another, in light of the fact that God in Christ forgave you, therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love. And then a little bit later, as we saw, and don't let uncleanness or fornication even be named among you. So we're looking at three commands this morning. That'll be the the breakup of the sermon. That'll be the outline of the sermon. There are three commands here. Let me remind you, in case you're new to this, these commands are not how you become a Christian. They're not what make you a Christian. Trying to obey them doesn't keep you right with God or make you right with God. These commands are given to you as a believer whose sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ to tell you now how to follow the one whom you love how to faithfully follow the one who has become your Lord. And so we have these three commands. The first one will be, be imitators of God. The second one is, walk in love. And the third one, if I may summarize it in this way, don't let fornication even be named among you. Those three commands for today. So the first, be imitators of God. Let's see it in the text again there, Ephesians 5, 1. Be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You are beloved children. If you're in Christ, he loves you. Do you have a child? Do you love your child? Yes, I love my child. That's how God is toward you. You are beloved children. And so be imitators of God as beloved children. A child wants to be like their parent. Boy wants to be like his dad. Girl wants to be like her mom. So you be like your God as beloved children He loves you, now imitate him. So imitate him, be imitators of God. The Greek word is, it's kind of cool, it's mimetai, like mimic. Mimetai, God, mimic God. What God does, you do. Going back to 432, God forgave sinners for Christ's sake. So you imitate that, you mimic that, you forgive sinners who've transgressed against you for the sake of Christ. So we're to be imitators of, of God. Many passages in the New Testament tell us to imitate somebody as they imitate Christ. Let's look at some of them quickly. Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 4 and 11. To the Thessalonians, Paul writes, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So it's appropriate to imitate people who are themselves imitating the Lord. We're supposed to do that. Or again, Hebrews 13, remember your leaders those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So it's right to imitate people so long as they are imitating God, as long as they're imitating the Lord. But here we read, back to verse 32, please, uh, and, and verse one of the next chapter, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So what he's really saying, if I may put it in simple terms, is be godly. What does it mean to be godly? It means you're being like God. 
So imitate God, mimic God, be godly. In this matter of forgiving one another, specifically, he just came from that, but also in what's going to come next. In your walking in love, be godly. And then you're not even allowing fornication or sexual sin to be named among you, be godly. So we're to imitate God. I'll just pause and ask you there, how are you doing? It's a pretty tall order. Imitate God. Be like God. Well, may the grace of God help us. May the power of the Spirit of God be ours in abundance. May the Word of God come to us in power, because we're to be like God, who is sufficient for these things. But the next command, moving along rather briskly, and we are also to walk in love. Let's go again to uh, the next slide, and walk in love. Verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So next, walk in love. The word walk, peripateo, to walk around, is used many, many, many times in the New Testament. It's used a number of times by Paul in Ephesians. The book is about your walk. The second half of the book is about your walk. Your walk is your whole manner of life. It's how you live. It's the things you do. And he's telling you the way you live is to be living in love. Isn't that cool? What's the first and greatest commandment in the universe? You shall love. First commandment is about love. You shall love the Lord your God. What's the second? Second's like it. You shall love your neighbor. On this hang all the law and all the commandments, all the prophets. So this is all about love. Let me just add, it's not a gushy love. It's a love that is sometimes a tough love. It is a love that is sometimes strong because it loves. But we're to, we're to walk in love as Christ loved us. So your life is to be all about love now. Your family is to be all about love. Our church is to be all about love. Lots and lots of love. Sometimes strong love, brotherly love. Sometimes love that warns and admonishes. Sometimes love that would even rebuke. That ought to be rare. If that's your main mode, you need some work on that. But it ought to be all about love. By the way, love is a major theme in Ephesians. At the risk of boring you, I'll read the references. There are 14 of them. Ephesians 1.4, love. Ephesians 1.15, love. Ephesians 2.4, 3.17, love. Ephesians 4.2, 4.15, 4.16, Ephesians 5.25, 5.28, love. Ephesians 6.23, 6.24, love. 14 times in the book, Paul's talking about our love, our love, our love, our love. So a major theme in your life is, I need to be living in love. I need to be imitating God, who is, God is love, and I need to walk in love. So what do people get from me? Love. What do people feel from me? Love. Among our staff at Cornerstone Church, there's 11 of us now kind of crazy. There's four full-timers and the rest are part-timers, but we have meetings and we sometimes look at behavioral values, what we want the climate to be among staff. And the first thing we have currently, they change from time to time, first thing we have currently is uh, it's all about love. 
Cornerstone Church needs to be that. We're walking in love as Christ loves us. Your family needs to be all about that. You're walking in love. Galatians 5.14, I'll just read it for you. It's not up there. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, you're fulfilling the whole law. Or Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love one another. There's a debt you've never paid. You can't get halfway through your day and say, there, I've loved enough. I paid my dues. I can be a creep the rest of the day. No, 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 no. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And specifically, let's see the verses again, please, oh slide man. We are to love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. And that's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. When you love, when you walk in love, you will be giving yourself up for others like Christ. To be like Christ, to be like God, is to be like Christ. He's God the Son. God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And to be like Christ means you walk in love. And when you walk in love, that means you will give yourself sacrificially for others. You will serve others. You will spend and be spent on the sacrifice of somebody else's faith. And you'll love that like Christ. And when you do that, I love the words that come here, and it will be like at the bottom of the slide there, when you do that, it is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Your love, which results in you serving, giving of your energy and your time and your resources to others, is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, what you might not know, but it'll be cool to know, is that's a phrase. Those two words, especially a fragrant offering, they come from the Old Testament. They're used 49 times in the Bible, most of them in the Old Testament, 16 times in the book of Leviticus, the one that's all about all the sacrifices of Old Covenant Israel. And it talks 16 times this phrase, a fragrant offering, a fragrant offering is mentioned. Let me read you just one, Leviticus 1.9, right off the bat. The priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. There you go. So in the Old Testament, when they offered up offerings, it was a sweet smell and divine nostrils. God would go, mm, that smells good. Because people are sacrificing, people are giving, people are denying themselves and showing their respect for me, for God, and they're giving me things that cost them something. God smells it and says, that smells good. Do you smell good to God? Here's a little simple illustration. So I have actually selected, and I have actually picked, a bunch of different colognes and perfumes, which I purchased for Debbie, and they sit on the counter in our bathroom between her sink and my sink. Yes, we have segregated sinks. This is my sink. Don't you come over here. It's my sink. That's your sink. But in between them on the countertop, there's these clones. Even the bottles are beautiful. The colors are beautiful. The names are beautiful. But the fragrances are beautiful. And I, I selected them. I bought them for her. And so I'll be sitting out in the breakfast nook maybe reading. That's very typical. Sitting out there reading. And she'll go in the bathroom and shh, 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 you know. And then she walks by and I go, hmm, this is my phrase. Somebody smells good. She hears that one a lot. Mmm, somebody smells good. And when you walk in love 
And that love is real love, and it causes you to deny yourself and to give and to serve and to care for others and for the kingdom of God. God says, mmm, somebody smells good, putting words in his mouth. But you get it. It's, it's a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God when you walk in love. So you want to smell good to God, walk in love, serve sacrifice. Cornerstone people, let's do that, all right? Let's be animated by love, real love, not the kind that says, I love you, and then walks away. Or at worst, I love you, and then stabbed you in the back, <laughs> twists it. No, real love. Let's be animated by real love so that God will smell our church and say, that smells good. Let me remind you that new creatures in Christ have new hearts, and new hearts in Christ have new loves. They can't help it. They always do. New hearts always have new loves. You're a new creature. You have a new heart. You have new loves, and they are powerful loves. And so you can't help it. You're in Christ. You have new loves. It's part of what Paul means when he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your old loves passed away. A whole set of new loves have come to be. And now you love the things of God. You what? You love the Lord your God. You love the things of God. You love the word of God. You love the people of God. You love serving God. You love these things. These are life to you now. You wouldn't go back to the life you had before when you loved the other things, would you? Like those things again? No thanks. So... You're a new creature. You have a new heart. You have new loves. They are powerful loves. Walk in love. Manifest those loves. You'll smell good to God. But now we're going to go to our third point today. Is it moving too fast for you? Is it okay? All right, thanks. All right, so imitate God. Walk in love. And now Paul gives us the converse. Here's an example of not walking in love. Verse 3, Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity... Or covetousness, we're not going to get to that one today. That'll be next time, Lord willing. These must not even be named among you. That doesn't mean don't ever say the words. He's saying the words. But it means let them be so non-existent in the lives of the people in your church that nobody ever has to name it and say, it's here. Let it be that you all live so far from sexual immorality, so far from impurity, that nobody would even need to name it and say, well, he's doing, and then you put in the word. No, let it not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness. He goes to your heart and your talk again. Nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So this is how not to walk. This is not walking in love. Listen, when you indulge in sexual immorality or impurity, it is not love. Love does no harm to a neighbor Immorality and impurity always harm a neighbor. Our culture would like to blind us to that and think it's good, make you think it's good. It's love. It's not love. It does harm to a neighbor. This is how not to walk in love, sexual immorality. By the way, first time in Ephesians that he mentions that. So now we come to sexual immorality. So let's step back from the text a little bit, actually for a little while now. Pardon me. Hang with me. 
So when Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, he becomes your Lord. And he becomes Lord over all of your life, over every part of your life. So Jesus Christ becomes your Savior, and he becomes Lord of your sexuality. He becomes Lord of your expression of your human sexuality, how and when and with whom it operates. And, I trust you know this, in the Bible, there's only one right way to use the gift of sex, and that is within marriage, and marriage is between one man and one woman in covenant for life. Well, there are two exceptions to that, where the covenant may be broken. But this is what God intends, because this is what's good for humans, because that it may be well with you, that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God gives you, that, that to put it in current terms that I'm not overly fond of, but... To, it's good for human flourishing. I'm not fond of that because that gets divorced from God's will and God's word. It's really good because it pleases God. But in the Bible, that's the right way to use the gift of sexuality. Here are two quotes from books I just read recently. One quote, quote number one, the right use of the gift of sexuality was the greatest distinction setting Christians of the early church apart from the pagan world. It was the greatest distinction what happened in the early church? That was a world very much like our world has now become, just full of sexual immorality. It's a way of life for people. It's everywhere. It's pandemic, and it is in our world now. And, and this writer says, the thing that most set Christians apart was they didn't engage in the immorality anymore. They didn't ga engage in that stuff anymore. Here's another quote. Because we are members of Christ, how we use our body and our mind sexually is a very big deal. It's a big deal because we're members of Christ. Paul says he who is joined to a harlot becomes one with her. You become joined to her. Don't take what is joined to Christ and join it to a harlot. That's what this author is arguing from. Because we're members of Christ, how we use our body and our mind sexually is a very big deal. So you can't think, all right, this thing we've gotten into now, but sexual immorality and all impurity, yeah, yeah, I hear you, let's go on, not a big deal. No, it's a very big deal. And it is in our age. This is one of the ways that Christians ought to be, need to be most distinct from the world around us. So the Bible is very clear, no sex outside the covenant of marriage, which is one man and one woman. But you don't need me to tell you, in our day, that's heresy. In our world, to the people in our world, that's heresy. In our day, there is maybe no core teaching of the Bible that is less popular than the Bible's teaching on human sexuality and marriage as well. They are, how could I say it more emphatically? They are so, they are so unhappy with biblical sexual morality that that morality is the new evil. You realize that, don't you? We're in the upside down world. If you promulgate this stuff, I just put it into a Bible. If you promulgate this stuff, you are the new evil person. You are the bad person on the planet. You are a fascist. You are equal to a racist. You are a hater. You are to be despised, and your words are to be canceled. We'll have none of that. That's where we live. You realize that, don't you? How did we get there? How do we get there so rapidly, it seems, in our culture? Well, it's simple. Reject God, reject the Bible, anything's possible. That's where we are. 
But let me give you a little more than the simple. So one of the books I read in the past year or two, Carl Truman's amazing book, I'm not recommending you read it unless you really want to read it. Uh, the title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, 400 pages on the scholarly side. Truman is a scholar, a very wonderful scholar. He's a professor at Grove City College in Western PA. He's been a pastor. He's a fine, fine man. And again, the title of the book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now he traces how thought led to thought, led to thought, and got us where we are. And skipping over some of the people that he has in his line, I'm going to just put forward three of the people. I'm going to save you reading 400 pages. You're welcome. So we're going to start with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Let's have that slide, please. You might be familiar with him. There are his dates. And here's what Rousseau said. Let me read you that part, talk about it more. He said, be yourself. See, that was kind of new. Prior to that, you had a family you're part of, and you'd be that family. You have a community you're part of, you'd be that community. You had a trade guild you're part of, you'd be part of that trade guild. You have your religion you're part of, you'd be part of that religion. Rousseau came along and said, no, you must be yourself. You must be a rugged individualist. You must be who you want to be. Don't let society shape you. It will corrupt you. You are at your best when you are truly yourself. So be authentic. That's where we got that whole thing. You should almost cringe when you hear that. Be authentic. Be authentic. Don't live a lie. And a term that's been attached to him is this. He's the one who introduced what is called expressive individualism. Be yourself and don't be afraid to express it out there in the world. So that was Rousseau. The world drank very deeply of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The world was really moved by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So the Bible says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Rousseau said, no, that's very wrong. The chief end of man is for you to be yourself. Be you. Then, skipping over a whole lot, he comes to Sigmund Freud. You'll see his dates there. And here's what Freud said, uh, be yourself. And when you do that, look inside. It became therapeutic. It became psychological. And when you do look inside, what you'll find there, Freud said, is primarily sexual. The main thing about you is sexuality. The main thing about you is sex. The main thing about your life is sex. That's Freud. Freud went so far as to say happiness, I shudder to read this, but I will. Happiness is genital pleasure. The goal of human existence is to be happy, and the way to be happy is to enjoy absolute, unfettered sexual freedom. So the Bible says man's chief end is, well, the Westminster Confession says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Sigmund Freud came along and said, no, actually, um, here's your chief end, to enjoy sexual pleasure. You are primarily a sexual being. If you want to be authentic, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want to be satisfied, if you want life, that is life indeed, then you need to just let yourself go in the kind of sexual pleasure you want. That was Sigmund Freud. He actually took this back to infancy. He wrote, quote, the purpose of human life at every stage. Why is this being extended back to kids and children and even earlier young children in our day? Why are they going after them? This is why. The purpose of human life at every stage is to find happiness, and you find that via sexual satisfaction. And so he wrote, quote, humans should make genital eroticism the central point of their lives. The Bible tells you to make God the central point of your life. One part of who you are, not the whole thing, it's not who you are, it's one little part of who you are, is I'm a human with sexuality. That's a little piece. But it's not the whole thing. But Freud came along and said, no, it, it's really, you need to do what Rousseau said, but let's psychologize it and let's sexualize it. You need to look inside and what you'll see in there is a sexual being. Go ahead and be that being. And this extends back to infancy. 
So to not get too far aside, why do we have drag queen story hour for children showing up at libraries? You're aware of that, aren't you? How many of you are aware of that? All right, why, why do we have that showing up at the library? Why are teachers' unions and whole school districts intent on teaching your kids, your young kids from K up? They have programs, they have literature, they have training, they have videos. People have found them and put them out and we can watch them and see what they're doing. Why are, they, why are they intent on doing this? Because they have drunk very deeply from Jean-Jacques Rousseau and then later on from Sigmund Freud. Why are they after your children in some, and maybe many, maybe most public schools? Why are there teachers, some places, who are groomers is the term being used? Because Freud has discipled them. And it is their objective to free children to be the sexual being that they want to be. Now, Freud's idea absolutely dominates the Western world. So much so that people are now categorized by like your whole being. This is the whole story of you. This is your whole life. Oh, you're straight. That's your whole life. You're gay. Your sexual orientation is now the whole story about you. It was never that before. In all of human history, it's never been that before. It's suddenly that now, and it's very that now. Prior to Freud, sex was largely for procreation, for purity, and for pleasure, Proverbs 5.19. After Freud, sex is who we really are. It's what is really important about us, so we must be free to experience it. After Freud, the happiest person is the one who is able to constantly indulge his or her sexual desires. So Rousseau said, be yourself. Freud said, and by the way, yourself is sexual. So be sexual any way you want to be. Then came, and here's the third one, skipping over some others, then came Karl Marx. There are his dates. And Karl Marx said the big story, the meta-narrative, if you will, the real story on the planet is not sin and fallenness and God and holiness and Christ and the cross, redemption. No, the big story on the earth is there are oppressors and there are the oppressed. So that's his whole Marxist thing, which has now become social or cultural Marxism. And in the line of Rousseau and in the line of Freud, you put all three of those, and with Karl Marx, you put all three of those in the box, and what you get is the problem on the planet is sexual oppression. The schools, the government, the institutions are here to relieve them from their oppressors, to free them to express things any way they want. So be yourself, you are sex, the great cause on the planet now is to stop sexual oppression. That's where we are. It's never been like this before. You are living in it. It's not just never been like this in America, it's never been like this before. Where the great purpose, the great cause, the thing you hear repeatedly in the media, the thing that's in the schools, the thing that's in the universities, the thing they're pushing for where you work, the thing that's being pushed everywhere is, is this. We have to stop sexual oppression. And the, those who would sexually oppress are the haters, are the new evil people, are the bad people. You're like Hitler to them. You really are. That's how they see you. So if you hold to biblical morality on things like gender and sexuality, you literally look like the KKK to them. You look like Hitler to them. You are a hater to them. You are the new evil on the planet, and your kind is to be stamped out. 
So the great cause is to free people all the way down through children from their sexual oppressors. This is what the teachers' unions, this is what the school districts, not all of them, but many of them are doing, freeing your children, quote-unquote, to be happy, freeing them from oppression to be themselves, their sexual selves. This is why the insane and evil and massive push for, quote, gender-affirming drugs and surgery, gender-affirming, what a phrase. Which, by the way, which thing is an economic boom for greedy doctors and hospitals? And Carl Truman in his book suggests, and I'll put it in my own words, one can only wonder how many kids will grow up and sue their parents later for allowing them to have the stupid surgery, the upper surgery or the lower surgery, and now it's too late. And now that they're old enough to know who they are, what they want to be, they realize that was awful. How many of them are going to sue their parents? So the message of the Bible is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Confession puts it. But the message of our world is the chief end of man is sexual pleasure, and redemption on the planet is to remove the oppressors and to free the oppressed. That's the great mission. Let me say it again. Are you feeling oppressed? Is this too much? So the great evil on the planet is sexual oppression. And the greatest task on the planet is to free people from sexual oppression. And the greatest use of government is to free people from sexual oppression. And the greatest use of education is to free people from sexual oppression. And the thing to do at your job is to free people from sexual oppression. And the worst people on the planet are those who would oppose that. Which if you're in Christ, that's you. That's you and me. To oppose it is to be a bigot, a hater, a fascist. To oppose your child's sexual liberation, quote-unquote. You are evil in the category of a Hitler. That, my friends, is what is going on. And just to make, make it feel more dark and weighty on your soul, let me inform you of the fact that this whole ideology, this whole agenda has absolutely captured the high ground. The battle is fought and done. They won. Like, don't be thinking like we're in the middle of the battle and maybe we can turn it back. The battle's over. They won. They have captured the teachers' unions. They've captured the universities. They've captured all different departments. They've captured law schools, for goodness sakes. And now the purpose of a law school is to promote this agenda and to stamp out those who don't go with the agenda. They've captured big tech. They've captured film and Hollywood and music and media and government Everything, pretty much, except for the current Supreme Court, which is a lagging indicator of, of a once-desired past. Somebody calls the Ivy League schools now the Poison Ivy League. <laughs> and right now, there's ginormous pressure to move sex ed back earlier and earlier and earlier in a child's life. And, and if you have your kids in any school, you need to really monitor this. You need to really watch this. So that's our world. Our local church is in that world. Our homes are in that world. Families are in that world. You are in that world. Reminds us of what the Bible says, you shine as lights in the midst of a perverse generation. So it's suddenly gotten, it really has, it has suddenly gotten very bad. And it's not just going away because they captured all the high ground. Don't think, well, if we can just win at the next election, that'll change. <laughs> you don't get it. That'll be a little Band-Aid 
on a huge machine of evil that has captured all the high ground. Think more like maybe in 500 years we regain the territory that's been lost. I hate to tell you. I think that's right. Of course, I'm giving you an opinion, but I'm not alone in that opinion. I'm listening to other people who study these things. But now, all right, enough of that. But now, here we are, followers of Jesus Christ. By his grace, we are new creatures in Christ. And we're living in that time, and we're living right in the middle of all that. And the word of God comes to us, and we must be ready to receive it and to stand upon it. We must be ready to live in a way that is now absolutely countercultural. Are you? Are you committed to the word of God? That's going to be one of the dividing lines. Who are the evangelicals, quote unquote, who are really committed to the word of God and will stand with it? And who are the evangelicals who will say, well, let's pair off some of the rough edges? Let's rebrand it so when they hear it, they'll like it. Listen, we're past those days. The whole rebranding thing worked for a while, but it doesn't work anymore because we are the new evil. You can't rebrand Christian morality in a way that will make them like it anymore. And we must battle not to be conformed. It's almost like now our, our biggest task, you're going to think I'm nuts here, is to build arcs and to ride out the storm, and the storm might be 500 years. The Bible, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In these days, one wonders. Because they're really trying hard with all the force and power of pretty much everything in the nation to stamp us out, to stamp out what we believe, to stamp out what we love. You must not compromise you must not compromise your church to try and keep the young in it. That's a flawed method. You must not compromise your family in order to try to keep the young happy. That's a flawed methodology. And to avoid taking a side is to be unfaithful to Christ. So let's go back to our verse 5-3. Would you put it up for us, please, slide man? 5-3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that's for next week, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Like, it doesn't exist among us. No one here is doing any of that. Sexuality among us is only operating with one man and one woman united for life in holy matrimony. Don't let anything else even be there so that it would have to be named. The term sexual immorality is one Greek word. It's porneia, from which, yes, we get the word porn, but it doesn't just mean that. This is the broadest term in the Bible, for it encompasses every kind of sexual immorality mentioned in the Bible. So it encompasses extramarital fornication, premarital fornication, polymarital fornication, gay marriage, all the alphabet, easy divorce fornication, other things you don't even want to mention. It, mention, it, it encompasses all of those. <laughs> I listened to a video by one global elite recently, a powerful man, who was asking, what should we do with all the billions of unnecessary people on the planet? We don't need them. 
he was saying. So what should we do with them? They really want way fewer people on the planet. A lot of people are just going to have to die, that's all. That's how they are. And he's, he was saying, we don't need them, so what should we do with them? And his solution was this. Let's drug them and porn them into oblivion. Sound like the Matrix? Just drug them and porn them. That'll keep them out of our way till they die and go away. Drug them and porn them. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 2, 2, flee youthful lusts. Now, I wonder, how are Christians doing at sexual so there are a lot of ways we can measure that. I'm going to choose one, and it really stands for all the others. I'm going to choose one kind of immorality. But if people are agreeing to that immorality, you can be sure they're also okay with that one and that one and that one and that one. So I'm, picked, I'm choosing one. It's a rubric for all of them. And I'll show you a slide. This is a very fine study, and it had a whole lot of such slides. But let me show you two slides that came from this study. Here is the first one. Oh, slide man. Thank you. Slide man giving us a slide. Can you see that all right? I didn't get a strong yes there. Yes, thank you. All right. So this study was measuring the percentage of evangelicals indicating that, quote, sexual relations between two adults of the same sex are always wrong versus are not wrong at all. So the blue line is always wrong, and the orange-yellow line is not wrong at all. So among evangelicals ages 18 to 29, 47% of them said, that's wrong. 41% of them said it's not wrong at all. We have a lot of work to do. And among evangelicals age 30 to 44, only 58% said it's wrong. And go up to age 45 to 49, now 76% said it's wrong. 60 to 74, 71% said it's wrong. 75 and older, 87%. Why is that not 100%? But look at the coming generation. Once the last two groups die off, what are we left with? Not much of a church when it comes to the issues of sexual immorality, of which this is just one example. Let's zoom in and look at this from a slightly different way. Next slide, please. This one is percentages of evangelicals indicating that sexual relations between two adults are of the same sex, always wrong, not wrong at all. But this is evangelicals who go to church. That was all people who say they're evangelicals. Here are evangelicals who go to church. Among evangelicals who go to church weekly or more, 83% say, always wrong. Good. Why is that not 100? But look what happens if you go to what a whole lot of Christians are now, especially since COVID, where Christians seem to have forgotten how to go to church regularly. Gripe, gripe. Among Christians, evangelicals who go to church one to three times a month, only 51% say it's only wrong. For those who go less than monthly, which is a whole lot of, quote, evangelicals, they go to church less than once a month, only 45% of them say it's wrong. And among those who never actually attend, only 39%. So going to church does do something. Regular church attendance does something. But we have a lot of work to do. Youth pastor, you have a lot of work to do. You help the parents. It's the parents' job. The Bible tells the parents to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You're just an aid to the parents, but a very good one. Thank you for being there. Help us. So, in closing, let's read the verse again, Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Three things in closing. Number one, please don't take your cues from the world because the world has gone very wrong, very ungodly, very evil. It's darkness out there. Please don't take your cues from them. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Wow, do we ever need that in our day? We need that. That's point number one. Don't take your cues from the world. Point number two in closing. Please understand that your identity is not primarily a sexual identity. Like if if somebody says that they have same-sex attraction, but they're a believer, so they're just going to be celibate for life, good, good for them. Somebody else says, oh, what a horrible sacrifice for them to have to make. You'd only say that if you thought sexuality was the main thing. For most of human history, it has not been the main thing, and you would have never said that. You would have thought, okay, it's just one little part of your life. Now it is you. Oh, what a sacrifice. Not a sacrifice. Well, it is, but not huge. Just one little part of what it means to be a human. Understand that your identity is not primarily a sexual identity. What is your identity? Who are you? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God by the blood of the Lamb. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm the husband of Debbie. I'm grandpa to 12. And Lord willing, more who will come along one day. My identity is not primarily a sexual identity. It's a spiritual identity. And a third thing in closing, please submit all that you are to the Lordship of Christ, including who you are sexually. Invite him now to be Lord over your sexuality. Pray with me and invite him. Father in heaven, thank you for teaching us how to imitate you, how to be like you, how to walk in love. And right now we open our hearts and our souls to you and pray that you would have your way in us in this matter. Lord Jesus, bring about repentance where repentance is needed, confession where confession is needed, forsaking where forsaking is needed, strengthening where strengthening is needed. Help us to be as lights who shine in a dark place. We pray that people here today would be saved, that maybe this sermon would help them to realize, ooh, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. The Lord Jesus is that savior. May they call upon you now, Lord Jesus. Would you draw them by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God? And may they say, Lord Jesus, here I am. Take me. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my trespasses. Wash me clean by your shed blood. Make me one of your own children. I call upon your name that I may be saved. Father, draw people to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, there may have been things in this sermon that make you want to